Stripping Down Science The Naked Scientists Will we find life in a lake three kilometres under the ice? How can living above an abandoned mine cut your heating bills? And what's the future for diet foods? It's Sunday, the 9th of September, and we're bringing you the best of the British Science Festival, which happened this week in Aberdeen. Hello, I'm Chris Smith, and I'm joined this week by Ben Valsler and Martha Henriquez. Thanks, Chris. Coming up, we'll also find out why the discovery of a Higgs-like particle at the LHC may ask more questions than it answers. It could be the Higgs that we've been expecting to see in our current understanding of physics, but it could be something more exotic. And that's really exciting. It could be something that gives us the first clue to some deeper mysteries in the universe that we're also trying to answer. And we'll ask if hormone-disrupting chemicals in our diets, our drugs, and even in our plastics might be altering the ecosystem. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. First, an expedition to tap into a lake buried three kilometres beneath the Antarctic ice sheet kicks off next month after 16 years of planning. Scientists will be looking for the chemical hallmarks of life as well as bacteria and other microbes in the lake water, which has been cut off from the outside world for tens of thousands, if not millions of years. Chris Hill from the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge has the unenviable task of being in charge of the operation and actually drilling into the lake. So what is this lake, known as Lake Ellsworth, and what are the conditions like there? Lake Ellsworth is a a liquid body of water underneath approximately 3.2 kilometres of ice sheet. It's a fairly sizeable lake. It's probably about the size of Lake Windermere, and it's been cut off for, as you say, many tens or possibly hundreds of thousands of years from our biosphere. The basic premise is that where there's water, there's life. We, We see that all over our planet, and there's a very special relationship between water and life. But because of the extreme conditions of Lake Ellsworth, the dark, the high pressure, the apparent lack of, of energy transfer, we, we really wonder what that life might look like. It's a, it's a fascinating exploration to, to find something new. What keeps it as water under all the ice? Well, that's um, a very good question, and um, it's actually quite an easy answer. The Earth is, is relatively quite a hot body. It, there's a lot of geothermal heating effects underneath the Earth, and ice, for all its cold, is actually quite a good insulator. So if you get a thick enough layer of ice over a hot body, it's inevitable that you're going to get pockets of water. And we think that water's been there for a very long time. Again, it's, it's, it's quite difficult to say until we can actually access the lake and get a sediment core to find out when that ice sheet last collapsed. But the hypothesis is it's, it's many hundreds of thousands of years, possibly as many as a million. Wow, that's quite some time, isn't it? What about on the surface? What are the conditions that you've got to work in <laughs> like? What's it like <clears throat> up there? It, it's not pleasant. Um, uh, we're on the top of a, a, a very open ice plateau. Uh, it's very cold, so even in the middle of summer, we're looking at temperatures of minus 25 degrees Celsius with average wind speeds of 25 knots. Um, so it's not pleasant. There's no shelter. There's nothing uh, anywhere near us for about 200 kilometres. There's no mountains. So we really are exposed. We have to take everything in. There's nothing there already, so we have to take all our equipment in, but all our living accommodation uh, and everything with us. Uh, we'll be living in tents, 
uh, will be wearing probably the thickest clothing um, you've ever seen. Michelin Man positive. Completely. So how will you access the water in the lake? Because it's under three kilometres of ice. It's a long way down. That's right. There's many ways we could do this. There's a lot of uh, techniques for drilling into ice, and scientists have been doing this for many years. But by far the cleanest and quickest is hot water drilling. And essentially, it's the same as a, a jet wash that you might use on your car. We, we're going to take some water from the melted snow, the ice on the surface, and we're going to heat it, and we're going to clean it, and then we're going to pump it up to a very high pressure and push it through a very long hose. And uh, it's a very quick and, and, and efficient and very clean way of drilling. So this will start at the surface and slowly melt its way down towards the lake? Exactly, uh, and not, not so slowly, actually. Um, 3.2 kilometres, we will probably get through from the surface to the lake in about 60 hours, so two, really? and a, two and a half days. And you've got a three-kilometre-long hose pipe? We've got three and a half kilometres. <laughs> uh, and and, and that's, that's another interesting thing, actually, because the number of engineering challenges we've faced to get this far are, are huge. And even simple things like you, you wouldn't think it would be difficult to get a three-and-a-half-kilometre hose made. It actually is. We only found two companies in the world that could produce a hose to our specification. So, I mean, just the hose itself, just a simple piece of tubing, was a real phenomenal engineering achievement. So the hot water goes down the hose. This melts the ice in front of it. Mm -hmm. How do you stop introducing the very molecules that you're going to go hunting for in the lake into the lake by dissolving them out of the ice and pushing them in at this very high temperature? Yeah, that's that's quite a good question. Um, The the preservation of the lake uh, has been paramount in our minds right from day one for for two reasons. One, obviously, we have an environmental responsibility to keep the lake pristine. Um, But probably more selfishly, we we actually want to preserve our samples. We don't want to be measuring anything that we've put into the lake accidentally. Um, So uh, it's twofold. Firstly, the water we're using to drill is, is taken from the background ice. So there's nothing that we're going to use that wouldn't come into contact with the lake at some point anyway. But more than that, the drill has been designed so that as we fire hot water out of the nozzle, the actual melted ice that's in the way will actually flush back up the borehole to the surface, keeping it away from the lake. So the only water that will actually reach the lake in the end is the water that's already gone through our filtration system and has been pumped down at so high pressure. So you're filtering all the water that you're, you're using for the melting? Absolutely. Every, every stage of this program has a, a cleaning protocol, and for the water we, we filter to beyond pharmaceutical levels. So that means screening out bugs and things like that? Completely. So how will you know when you've actually got through the last bit of slush and you're now in the lake? There's two ways. We'll know when we're close because the radio echo sound and seismic data has given us a really accurate distance to the surface of the lake. And we obviously will know how much hose we've paid out and we will know the stretch of that hose. So we'll know when we're within a few metres. But then what we have is a a suite of pressure sensors that will allow us to monitor the change in water levels at the top of the borehole. So we anticipate that as we break through to the lake, we won't fully have accurately equalise the pressure of the lake. So as soon as we do break through, there'll be a pressure change in the borehole and we'll be able to sense that and that will give us the indication. But like the, the, the Coke bottle, when you take the top off and it fizzes up a bit, you'll, you'll see a little pressure change. Yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll see a pressure change and we should be able to measure that and that will be our accurate indication that and we're then broken through. And you'll drop in some probes to measure things in the lake. That's exactly right. So when we finish drilling, we need to recover the drill hose um, because we can't put two things down the, the borehole at the same time. So we recover the drill hose Um, And then because we're not using any antifreeze to keep the hole open, we have just 24 hours to deploy two instruments. The first instrument is a sampling probe, which will take water samples and will also flush through some of the filtrate, the background filtrate in the lake, and will take a small amount of mud from the bottom of the lake. 
We then recover that and we deploy a sediment corer, which we hope to get a three-metre core of sediment from the base of the lake, which will give us a really good time record of what's happened in the West Antarctic Ice Sheet in years gone by. Chris Hill from the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge talking to our own Chris Smith. And now from extremely cold to comfortably warm, can old mine workings beneath Glasgow and other cities help to heat homes? British Geological Survey scientists have come up with a strategy using heat pumps to extract warmth from the water deep within flooded mine shafts to supply homes, returning about four kilowatts of heating for every one kilowatt of energy consumed just to run the system. From Edinburgh, Dermot Campbell. The idea is that we use heat pump technology to uh, exploit the resource which lies under a city, and we've been using Glasgow as a test case. We've been using Glasgow mainly because we've been doing a lot of work there in the last few years, developing high-resolution 3D models of the subsurface of Glasgow. We've acquired a very good understanding of the extent of the abandoned mine workings which underlie very large parts of the city of Glasgow and the wider Glasgow conurbation. How much of Glasgow is sitting on a mine shaft? Well, looking at the Glasgow conurbation as a whole, it's approximately 50%. In fact, most of the eastern conurbation of Glasgow is sitting on top of mine workings. How deep? Uh, They vary up to a maximum depth of about 610 metres, but on average they're generally in the the range of 250 to 300 metres deep as a maximum. But some of the mine workings are very shallow. Some of the oldest mine workings come to surface. Are they still intact or have they all collapsed? Various mining techniques were used and there have been various collapses of some of the very near surface workings, which are the oldest workings. But by and large, as the the mines developed, they started to use a technique called longwall mining, which actually allowed the workings to collapse immediately after the coal had been extracted. So most of the collapse and subsidence took place a long time ago when the mines were actually active and working. So what we've got underground will be layers of rock which is intact and therefore very strong and impervious. And it will be punctuated by these sort of lateral shafts where even if collapses happen, there's lots of debris, things can flow through there. Yes, and and the idea of flowing is the key principle in all of this because once the mines had stopped operating pumps were turned off, the natural groundwater system was allowed to reinvade the rocks. So essentially the abandoned mine workings are now flooded. And the important thing is that it's an important aquifer, contains a lot of water, and that water flows very readily through the mine workings and through the tunnels which interconnect the mine workings to the shafts. That's the important factor that we can exploit in using ground source heat pump technology. So you could put a tube or a borehole down to some of these lateral shafts that are full of water at ambient temperature. Will this therefore exploit the fact that some bits of the mine are going to be at a different temperature than others and you're using that temperature gradient? Very much so. Now the idea isn't entirely new. There are working systems, usually on a small scale, and in fact there's an example in Glasgow which has been operating now for 13 years, providing space heating for some 16, 17 houses in a housing association project. It was a very innovative piece of thinking by the architect who developed the project. And the deeper, essentially, you drill into the workings, the warmer the water is likely to get. And you can then pump that water to surface, extract some of the heat using heat exchangers, essentially the technology we have in our fridges, and then return slightly cooler water to a shallower level in the mine workings. So you pull out some of the warmer water and extract the heat from it using the heat pump technology. Yes. 
and then return the colder water to a yes. different part of the mine. Yes, and a shallower part of the mine, typically, and that, this is what has been done in the largest current working example of such a system in, in the southern Netherlands. It's a demonstrator project which came on stream in 2008. It had some support from the European Union Interreg Fund to get the project up and running, but developers uh, buy the heat technology from a company that was set up by the local authority there. Is there so, any risk, though, with doing this? Because you're putting water, albeit only a tiny amount cooler, in one part of the mine having taken the energy out, this could potentially affect the pressure, could it not? Or, or the, the effect on the rock, it could make the rock contract or expand differentially across the, the mine workings. Is that not a risk? I don't think pressure is the, the real issue at stake because the sorts of volumes of water that we're moving around our systems would be tens of litres a second, potentially. So we're not moving colossal amounts of water around the system. But certainly the change in temperature of the rock mass is something that we have to take account of, especially in relation to some of the oldest workings, which... Uh, left pillars of rock in place holding the roof of the workings up. And colleagues of ours in Edinburgh University are looking at this aspect now and looking at the potential stresses that this might create. But we think on the, the sort of scale that we we're likely to operate the process, it wouldn't be a major issue. Based on the maps you've made, how much energy do you think is down there in terms of the, the capacity of that system to supply how much of Glasgow, for example? Well, we've used various ways of looking at this, but a, a flow rate method which considers the sort of borehole yields that you might get from mine workings and the temperature of the, the waters that you would be exploiting. Uh, we've come up with various scenarios, one of which suggests that uh, using four boreholes per square kilometre in areas where there are mine workings, extracting up to 10 degrees centigrade, which is more than we would normally anticipate doing, you could potentially provide up to 40% of Glasgow's space heating requirements. And that's on a fairly sustainable basis, potentially up to 100 years. How many people in Glasgow? Uh, 1.2 million people live in the Glasgow conurbation, 600,000 within the city of Glasgow itself, but about half of those live above mine workings. Presumably Glasgow is not unique in having mine workings under it either. It certainly isn't. No, in fact, a large proportion of the Midland Valley of Scotland, for example, uh, lives above or close to mine workings, and there are major coalfield areas in northeast of England, the northwest of England, the Yorkshire coalfield, the, the Midlands, South Wales, and so on. So quite a significant uh, part of the, the British population. So if you get this working here, mine workings. then you could extrapolate this across the country. Very much so, and that, that would be uh, something that we would really like to see if it could be achieved. Yes. Dermid Campbell from the British Geological Survey. And this is The Naked Scientist. We're reporting from the British Science Festival in Aberdeen. You're listening to Ben Valsler, Chris Smith and Martha Henriquez. Thanks, Ben. You can get in touch with us if you wish by tweeting at Naked Scientist. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash The Naked Scientist, or you may do it the old-fashioned way by emailing chris at thenakedscientist.com. Martha. It's been an exciting year for the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC, CERN's high-power particle accelerator in Switzerland. Recently, the facility announced that they have discovered evidence for the Higgs boson, the particle that gives things their mass. Liverpool University physicist Tara Shears spends part of her time experimenting at the LHC and spoke at the festival about what the discovery might mean. Well, we've quite definitely found something completely new. We, we can be sure of that. And I know that the way that physicists are very reticent about claiming exactly what it is that's been discovered is something of a source of amusement for most people. What's clear is that we've seen something absolutely new in our data. And that something is doing the jobs that we, th that we think the Higgs is there to do. So 
Really, I'm pretty sure that it's the Higgs. This is the particle we've been looking for for the past 40 or 50 years since our subject started, and that's what makes it so amazingly exciting to us. So can we all go home now, then? So oh, shut down no. CERN, Higgs, <laughs> Higgs has found job done. No, not at all. This is just the start of it, and I'm not saying that to... Because I enjoy doing my job. <laughs> I'm saying Although you do have a vested interest. <laughs> <laughs> but really, really, this is the tip of the iceberg. We, we've seen this discovery. We've seen something new. We're still not sure, though, exactly what it is. I, I have to stress that. It could be the Higgs that we've been expecting to see in our current understanding of physics, but it could be something more exotic. And that's really exciting. It could be something that gives us the first clue to some deeper mysteries in the universe that we're also trying to answer. So what actually have you seen when scientists from CERN are saying we have seen evidence of, of a Higgs-like particle? What actually does that mean? What it means is we've, we've combed through trillions, millions and trillions of proton-proton collisions from the collider, looking for specific experimental signatures that are characteristic of what we'd expect a Higgs particle to have. These signatures are rare, but clean, and that's the key. So if we see enough of them, then we can be sure we're not looking at some random combination that just is nature being cruel and teasing us that we're seeing a Higgs. We're actually seeing the, the real deal. We have enough data now to really be confident that we're seeing something that isn't a random fluctuation. I mean, we're seeing something at the level of one in 10 million. <laughs> that sort of chance of being a background fluke. So from that point of view... No, it's real. It's real, believe it. People are saying this is definitely some kind of boson. Is it the Higgs boson? What do they mean when they make that fairly cautious statement? So the sort of particle we're looking for for a Higgs is the type of particle called a boson, and, and what that means is, is it has a quantum property. It has what we call integer spin. That's what makes a boson a boson and not some other type of particle. But as to whether it's a, a Higgs boson, well, what we're looking at is to see if it behaves in the way that we expect the Higgs to behave. And what we mean by that is we're looking to see how it interacts with the other particles, how often it joins up with them, how often it decays to them. What makes the Higgs special is that unlike the other bosons in nature that we know about that convey the forces of radioactivity or electromagnetism, this has, a, in a sense, a more fundamental role. It's responsible for giving the fundamental particles we know about mass but that also has the knock-on effect of making the forces in the universe behave in the way they do. If you didn't have that Higgs there, then the universe would be completely different. You wouldn't have atoms, you wouldn't have stars, you wouldn't have us. Everything would zip round at the speed of light and wouldn't even coalesce at all. So it's at that level of fundamentalness that we, we have this interest in, in seeing this particular particle. When people talk about you actually see the particle, and then on the other hand they're talking about a Higgs field... And the Higgs field is a bit like a gravity field. It's why things have mass. What's the difference between the particle and the actual field? How does one relate to the other? In brief, because this field, this energy field, that's the Higgs field, is invisible to us, the particle is the public face of the field. It's the only part that we can actually see. It accompanies it. What it means at a slightly deeper level is that if you think of space being filled with this sort of jelly-like, Higgs-field-like Higgs substance then a Higgs particle that we see corresponds to a ripple in this field, like a sound wave going through a room where the room is full of air. That's a good analogy to have in your head. So these, these Higgs particles are everywhere and they are creating the field or giving rise to the field around them, and matter interacts with that field, which is why matter has mass. Pretty much. The Higgs particles are, are naturally associated, intimately associated with this field. You, you don't get one without the other. But... 
fundamental particles moving through this field get their mass by that interaction with the field. So by discovering the Higgs particle, we know that the Higgs field is there. And because we know the Higgs field is there, we know that that's how particles get their mass. So how does the collision actually give rise to a Higgs particle? Is it that the collision in some way changes the field and that means that we can see that signature sign of there being a Higgs particle there? Or are we creating a Higgs particle when we do those enormous collisions? If you like, when, when we have a proton-proton collision at the LHC, we're really shaking the field and giving it sort of a big knock on the side and forcing a Higgs to come out. Uh, it's like going back to my analogy of having a sound wave um, propagating to a room. It's like you've got an enormous drum at one end that you're beating to, to make these, these things happen. So our, our collisions make the Higgs visible for a very short instance of time. And then we see the debris that the Higgs leaves behind once it decays down. So what are the, the next steps now that you'll be focusing on at CERN? What are the big questions now you think you've got the Higgs? What's it going to take to firm this up? Where are you going next? The very first question we have to answer is what sort of Higgs are we looking at? That's very important. And to answer that, we need to look in much greater detail at the way it behaves and compare that behaviour to our theories to see if it's matching up with the Higgs we expect or whether, as I said, it, it can be a more exotic version. But that's just one thing we're trying to answer with the LHC. We're also trying to understand what the nature of dark matter is, what it's made of. We're trying to understand what the nature of antimatter is and why we just don't have any in the universe anymore. And since you mentioned it, just to finish off, do we think that antimatter interacts with a Higgs particle, or is there the antimatter equivalent of a Higgs particle? That's an extremely interesting question. Antimatter has mass, therefore it must interact with the Higgs to get that mass. But as to whether the Higgs has its own antimatter counterpart, well, that depends very much on the type of Higgs that we're looking at. It could well, or it could be its own antimatter counterpart. I mean, really, it gets very science fictiony at this point, seeing as we know so little about it. But yes, it's, it's one of the questions we want to know about. Liverpool University particle physicist Tara Shears. You're listening to a special edition of The Naked Scientists from the British Science Festival, which took place in the University of Aberdeen this week. We've heard on Twitter at Naked Scientists from Dr Hannah Garrett, who says she's listening online. You can pick up the stream from the front page of our website, and she says she's considering moving above a mine, based on what we were hearing just now. Now, we've all been there. It's the end of a very long day. You're tired and hungry, and you know you shouldn't, but you're finding the lure of the cake counter impossible to resist. Now, scientists think that this sort of willpower failure is responsible for many of us putting on weight. Thankfully, Aberdeen psychologist Julia Allen has come to the rescue. What we were particularly interested in is why people don't stick to their good dietary intentions. So we know that a lot of health promotion campaigns focus around giving people information under the assumption that if you give people more information, they'll make a better choice. So an example would be the five-a-day campaign. We're telling people you should eat five a day. We're telling people the benefits of five a day. And we're assuming at some level that having that information will make them more likely to eat five a day. But unfortunately, what we know and what's now very well established is that information on its own isn't sufficient to produce behaviour change. So we've been developing little signs to be displayed at food order points in coffee shops and the signs show the entire range of snack foods that are available ordered from on the left hand side the least calorific up to the most calorific on the right hand side and they have a little uh, message at the top saying if you want to eat fewer calories today then choose one of the snacks on the left and so we're directing people's attention away from the higher calorie snacks and towards the lower calorie ones. There'd be sort of Mars bar over on the right 
banana on the left. And so you're saying to people, you can have one of those or one of those. And if you want fewer calories, go to the left-hand end of the scale. Yes, and we're trying to capitalise on people's natural, there's naturally a slight bias for the left side of visual space. So people will naturally pay slightly more attention to things presented on the left than the right. Does it work? When we've been testing these, we randomly allocate coffee shops in in blocks of a week. So we'll have the sign randomly displayed for six weeks out of a 12-week period and then we'll record sales figures throughout the entire period and compare sales of all the different items when the signs are there and when the signs are not. And what we're seeing is that when the signs are present, we see a measurable reduction in sales of all of the higher-calorie items and about half of the lower-calorie items increase their sales. So people do seem to be switching down and making different dietary decisions. So it clearly works because people were changing their behaviour. How did it go down with the store owners, though? Because if they're not selling a Mars bar and they're selling an apple instead, that's okay. But if they sell no Mars bar and someone doesn't buy something instead, they're going to lose money. I think that's always a tricky issue and we did have um, a lot of negotiations at the start of this project about whether or not we could trial an intervention that ultimately might negatively impact on their sales. But I think there's been a real shift in the culture of organisations towards promoting healthy eating. So many of these places now have a healthy living award and so on. So they were actually fairly open to the idea. The beauty of this intervention is more typically people were switching one purchase for another. So some people certainly didn't buy things but more, a more typical pattern was to see how many calories were in, for example, a latte, and to choose to have a black coffee instead. Did you quiz any customers who had interacted with the sign and then bought something so that you could see how they reacted to it? What was their perspective? Yes, we did. We had, um, we had about 130 customers who agreed to come and be interviewed after the study, and we, we went away and we measured their executive function, and we found that the people with the the weakest executive function were much more likely than others to have changed their behaviour in response to the sign. People were buying fewer calories than they would typically buy um, in a visit to that coffee shop. And when we asked them how they'd used the sign, most had used it in the way that we'd expected or had not used it at all, had either not noticed it or not um, felt it wasn't relevant. But we did have a sizable minority who used the sign in a way... uh, where we hadn't anticipated. So they would see, for example, that there was 300 calories in their milky coffee and decide that they could have three Milky Ways instead of that, and that's exactly what they did. So So they were buying stuff, which was actually not necessarily a healthier option, but they knew they could get away with as many bad things as one coffee, so they were trading one evil for another. Yes, there was a, a sizable minority did exactly that, and I have to say, anecdotally, they they were all women. So um, (laughs) they made the decision based on it seemed to us that oh well I would have had that anyway and look I could have three small bars of chocolate for the cost of that coffee which was not really what we intended so it's a work in progress. Will this translate to other things you've done it with food what about fizzy drinks or or maybe other things could it work with cigarettes could you have nicotine and tar levels or something on a similar sort of scale and persuade people to switch to to a less unhealthy cigarette? Well, we've done it initially in snack foods and we've also done it in drinks because we know that the kind of premium coffee industry is also a big um, a big source of calories. So I think a lot of people don't realise when they're in Starbucks that there's, there's up to a 500 calorie difference between a full-fat hot chocolate and a black coffee. And so we've got the same effect in drinks, but it's a general principle. So in theory, it should apply to 
any behaviour that requires willpower or self-regulation. I'm going to have to knock the lattes on the head. That was Julia Allen, and uh, the results of her study show that people tended to eat, on average, 66 fewer calories as a result of her intervention, and that is sufficient, other studies have shown, to make a meaningful dent in a person's likelihood of gaining any weight. And that in itself is extremely important, as it's often said that we're facing an obesity epidemic here in the Western world with all of the health implications that come with it. Researchers in Aberdeen are now trying to develop new types of diet food that help you cut calories by making you feel fuller for longer. Dr Alexandra Johnstone. Well, I'm interested in appetite control, and that mostly is applied within the context of weight loss. Uh, because one of the main reasons why we fail to lose weight is because we feel hungry. So if we can develop dietary strategies that help control appetite, then we'll help people lose weight. So regardless of the content of the diet itself, the, the problem is that we keep eating and we eat more than we should. Yes, we have a huge obesity epidemic in the UK and you know it would be nice to think we would have preventative strategies to stop our waistlines expanding further, but we also need therapy. So it's not just drug therapy, it's not just bariatric surgery. We need other lifestyle approaches to help people maintain and manage their body weight. So what is it that stops our appetite? How do we actually feel full? Is it more than just literally filling up the bag that is our stomach? Well, the volume of the food, of course, is important and, and that's kind of governed from the stomach. But the work that I'm interested in is the role of protein and in influencing how full we feel. And that's, that's when I use the word satiety. So what I'm interested in is protein-induced satiety. So how, what is it about protein, the macronutrient protein, that helps fill us up and makes us feel fuller for an extended period of time? Just to remind you, our protein sources are primarily uh, from meat, whether red meat or fish or poultry, but can also be non-meat sources from cereals, dairy products and peas, beans and pulses. Protein, of course, is a, a huge overarching term for anything that's made up of a long chain of amino acids. So it really could be any source of protein or are we looking at specific proteins that we think have an effect? The work that I've done would tend to indicate that uh, vegetable and meat source protein are both effective at influencing appetite during weight loss. So that's encouraging. So it gives us insight to a variety of different sources that we can use to try and influence how full we feel. So what do we think is actually happening when we eat protein compared to, let's say, a high fat diet or a high carbohydrate diet? That's a good question. I'm not sure I have the answer, unfortunately, but some of the mechanisms that will be involved is when the protein reaches the stomach uh, and then is digested and partly absorbed, then that will influence the gut hormones that are released from the stomach and they are fed directly into the brain via the vagus nerve. So we know that that's potentially one of the mechanisms. Other mechanisms, as you said, is the amino acid structure of the proteins and that they, the change in, in flux of amino acid concentration in the blood would potentially also influence the brain. And I keep mentioning the brain because it's our traditional view that the brain is very important in regulating and sensing changes in energy um, and as it's thought to be our traditional sort of hunger and fullness centre. So what are we going to do now to investigate this further? If we still need to shed some light on the, the physiological mechanism, what can we start doing? 
Today we've been speaking about work that's funded by the EU. It's a very large multi-million project across uh, nine European countries and 18 academic and food industry partners. So it's pulling together all that expertise to develop new products that can be tried and tested in humans to help control appetite. And skipping forward a few years, within the, the SATIN grant, or Satiety Innovation is, is the name of the grant, we'll be looking at how diet can influence appetite with a view to helping people lose weight. So lots of research is done telling us what foods we should and shouldn't eat and the right sort of balance and how much red meat we're supposed to eat per day and so on. You're taking that a step further and looking at developing new foods that have the right protein mix or the right components to actually make us feel fuller. That's exactly right, yes. And we'll be testing it in a whole diet. It's going to be done in Denmark, so we have volunteers where they've provided all of their food items for an extended period of time, say six months. So we'll be able to look at changes in body weight over that prolonged period of time. So it's quite a challenging project. The other way to look at this, though, is that it, protein is responsible for telling people that they're full. And we know some people in conditions where they might be ill need to actually eat more and they need to overcome their own feeling of fullness in order to take on more calories. Can we do essentially the reverse of what we're talking about and engineer foods so that people can take more on before they feel satisfied? Yeah, that's a very good point to make and that you know, although we're dealing with the obesity epidemic, there is a small proportion in the UK, nonetheless extremely important, and that's the elderly undernourished. And um, the protein probably does have a role to play, and certainly some of my work involved in other EU-funded projects, looking at the role of uh, protein in a liquid form and how that influences appetite and food intake. So, in that sense, it's used as a between-meal kind of supplement in order to give them essential nutrients and vitamins and minerals in a drink form that can help potentially improve quality of life. Alexander Johnstone from Aberdeen University. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. This week we're bringing you the best of the British Science Festival, which happened this week in Aberdeen. Martha. One reason why children struggle to learn to read is that they become so distracted with trying to get the sounds of the words right that they lose track of how the actual word relates to the story they're trying to read. This also makes it hard to remember that word in the future because its context has been lost. To combat this, Art Glenberg from the University of Arizona has developed a teaching system whereby the child interacts with the story by moving objects and people referred to in the story around on a computer. They find that the developing brain ties the word and the action or meaning together and makes them more memorable. The result is up to 50% better performance in comprehension and word recall tasks. What I'm about to say doesn't apply to all children, but to many children. And that is that they haven't learned how to make the link between the written word and their experiences. So when they come to a word like beach, some children may not hook that up with their own experiences at the beach. And when they don't do that, all is lost. They don't get any meaning from the text that they're reading. So they're sounding it out and saying beach, but that doesn't to them in their mind mean waves, sand, sandcastles running around in the sunshine. Exactly. And you might ask further, why is that? They've said the word. And I think the reason is that when the word is said in the context of reading, it's often pronounced disfluently, and it doesn't have the context around it that it would in a normal conversation. 
uh, with one's parents or with one's friends about running around on the beach and playing ball on the beach when the children are reading and having difficult reading, each word is pronounced individually and disfluently. And so those words just don't make the contact that's with the experiences that's necessary. Is that just because the child is concentrating so intently on getting the word out that actually the meaning is being lost? I think that's part of it. It does require a lot of concentration to get the word out. But another reason why the meaning is lost is because it's taking so long for the child to get the word out when saying beach that the word just before has been forgotten. And certainly the word three words ago has been forgotten. So it's very difficult for the child to integrate the meanings. So what do you think we can do about it? There are a number of, uh, of attempts to help children read better. One is to have them practice uh, so they develop fluency, and I think that's certainly a good idea. But what I've been pushing is this program called Moved by Reading, where we help children develop the links between reading and their experiences. And we do it in a very simple, child-friendly manner by having the child read simple text with images of the characters in the text up on the computer screen. And then as the child reads a sentence, for example, a sentence about uh, activities on a farm, the child might read, Ben drives the tractor to the barn. What the child will do is to move the image of Ben, the farmer, into the image of the tractor, and then move the two of them toward the image of the barn. And what we find is that this sort of physical manipulation has a number of benefits. First, it helps the children remember the story much better than they would otherwise, often twice as much. It lets them answer inference questions from the story much more accurately. The major benefit, though, is that after children have been engaged in physical manipulation, we can then tell them to do it in their imagination. When they're reading, they should imagine the characters moving, and it seems like after children get the idea from physical manipulation, they're able to do it on their own. And this is something that we do as adults intuitively. We've kind of learned just naturally to do that. So when we read something, we're seeing pictures in our own mind to decode what's going on, and we don't even notice we're doing it. You're actually here training that development in a child, but getting it at an earlier age. I think that we as adults don't so much do it intuitively, but we have learned how to do it by virtue of our educations. And those of us who have been lucky enough to have had a good education or good parents uh, who will read to us and point to pictures uh, in a picture book, that sort of activity has encouraged our ability to do this sort of imagination that then allows us to get the meaning from the text that we're reading. Many adults will claim that they don't have any images while they're reading. And that claim may be perfectly true in the sense of not having images that are consciously available. But when you put those same people into an MRI machine or into an MEG machine, what you can show is that those areas of the brain that are used in generating 
those sorts of visual experiences are active when they're reading. But the activation for skilled readers is so fleeting that there isn't much conscious experience. What's the difference, though, between what you're doing and a general picture book? Because the pictures draw the child in. Is it just the physical engagement of having to interact with the picture and remember the story that means the child is more engaged than they would be with just a sterile picture? I think that's part of it, uh, certainly the engagement. Uh, Another part is that when a child is reading in a picture book, the relation between the words and the pictures isn't systematic. So sometimes the child will look at the picture, sometimes the child won't. They may be looking at the wrong picture. Another part of it that I think is very important, though, is that by manipulating the pictures, it forces the child to take into account the syntax of the sense, how the words go together, the who does what to whom, because the child must generate those appropriate actions on the pictures to go on to the next sentence. When it's just a static picture book, there's nothing enforcing the need to consider the syntax. The child could see the word dog and look at the dog, could see the word cat and look at the cat, and never appreciate the relation between the dog and the cat, like the dog is chasing the cat or whatever. Art Glenberg from the University of Arizona. Industry has revolutionised the way that we live. In the developed world, we enjoy high-quality lifestyles, healthcare breakthroughs and a range of gadgets and devices that make life cheap and easy. These range from plastic baby bottles to printed circuit boards and even non-stick frying pans. But the result is that we're all being exposed to low levels of mixtures of chemicals that together might be having serious impacts upon our health. Sheep exposed naturally to these same substances are showing signs of changes to their fertility reproductive organs, brains and bones. Aberdeen scientist Stuart Rind. We're investigating the potential effects of environmental chemicals, most of which are man-made chemicals, collectively referred to as endocrine-disrupting compounds, EDCs. Now, what that means is that multiple chemicals coming from many, many different sources which have one thing in common, they interfere with the normal actions of physiological systems in animals. How? Well, their actions can probably be at the gene level, affecting gene expression, or they can interfere with enzyme systems in cells. We see changes in cellular structures. We see changes in organ structures. We see changes in animal behaviour the incidence of diseases, etc. It it comes in many, many different forms because there are many chemicals acting in many different ways. And what are the consequences of those actions? Do we know exactly how they affect living systems and, and who's vulnerable? Is it just humans? Well, the short answer is that no, we don't know. But what this work that we've been doing is beginning to show is that the actions of multiple chemicals together, each of them at levels far too low to be considered in any way harmful, may have consequences for the functioning of many different organs and for animal health and and well-being, particularly for reproduction. Now, when you ask which animals, well, the short answer is all animals. And when I say all, I don't just mean mammals, I mean all animals, all the way from bacteria through all sorts of worms and mollusks, all the way up to humans. 
Gosh, so pretty comprehensive, the impacts. And, of course, if you fiddle with one bit of the ecosystem, it will have knock-on effects. That's right. It, we're talking about extremely complex systems here. Not only are we talking about potentially up to 100,000 chemicals acting on probably dozens of different systems, we're talking about different species responding in different ways. But the overall effect is that we might be upsetting ecosystems on which humans depend for their survival. I mean, to take a simple example, if, as I said, we could be perturbing populations of bacteria in soil, also populations of many other organisms such as earthworms, which are fundamental to the processing of nutrient, which is then used by our crop plants. Now, if by introducing these chemicals to the soil in increased amounts, we start to perturb those populations, we start to change the whole ecosystem, perhaps reducing the population of one species and increasing that of another, we may upset these processes. If we upset these processes, perhaps we could be compromising our crop production with all the consequences of that for an increasing human population. Difficult to study and very difficult to, to make predictions, a bit like Niels Bohr said. Predictions are always difficult to make, especially about the future. So how are you trying to get a handle on what the impacts might be? When we started this work in 1997, I was charged with investigating endocrine-disrupting compounds. My first problem was that these chemicals are known to be present in very, very low levels. So in order to study them, I wanted to find a, a way of increasing animal exposure, but not in a big way, not like is done in the lab where you take one chemical and you maybe go to from very low levels up to what would be considered pharmacological levels, the kind of levels you would take with a, a drug, you know, to cure a disease. Huge amounts. I wanted to get away from that. I wanted a subtle change, something that was real world, if you like. So I came up with the concept of using sewage sludge. All our drains from our domestic and industrial facilities all ultimately end up in our sewage system, which goes into a sewage farm where it is processed. Two products come out. One is pure, in inverted commas, water, and the other is solid waste. But because of our human lifestyle, it contains all of the products that we use. It contains our medicines, illegal drugs, things from plastics, from cleaning agents. So we're using this sludge as a tool. In many parts of the world, it is recycled to land as fertiliser. And by putting it onto pasture, something that's done routinely we can study the effects of introducing these extra chemicals on animals exposed to that treated pasture. It's grazing animals. This is sheep in this case. So the sheep is our experimental model, and we're applying the sludge to the pasture as a fertiliser. And what are you measuring about the sheep? First of all, we're measuring the concentrations of selected endocrine disruptors in the tissues of sheep to get an idea how much of these chemicals is actually present. Now, there is a second part, and that is what are the consequences for the function of various organs? And that's where a number of collaborators in many different countries come in, and they've been able to demonstrate subtle changes in multiple organs. What are you comparing the sheep grazing the sewage-treated grass with? Because obviously it's one thing to do an observation, it's another to say, well, we've got cause and effect here. We have a control group of animals, that is an untreated group. They are treated in exactly the same way as those exposed to the sewage sludge, except that instead of using sewage sludge as fertiliser, we use an inorganic man-made fertiliser, which we know 
contains absolutely minimal levels of these pollutants. We can't guarantee that the effects we see are a function of the chemicals, these endocrine disruptors, but our results taken in conjunction with what's known in the literature, we believe it to be the most likely explanation. That being the case, what is the implication for us, humans? In my personal opinion, if things went to their logical extreme, we could threaten the viability of ecosystems on which we depend, and we could ultimately threaten our own fertility as a species. We already have evidence of declining sperm count, increased incidence of requirements for IVF in vitro fertilisation, particularly in certain countries. I think we do need to understand possible consequences for the health of the ecosystems on which we depend for our own survival. Stuart Rhines from Aberdeen University. Now that's nearly all we have in our roundup of the British Science Festival that came from Aberdeen this year. But one thing that really caught my eye was the science of brightly coloured fossilised insects. When we see a reconstruction of a prehistoric creature, perhaps in a book or on TV, the creator has usually made it very colourful. But how do we know what colour it should be? Historically, we haven't, and so the creator has just made it up. But Bristol scientist Maria McNamara has made a breakthrough that means she can now work out the colours of ancient fossilised insect remains. Most of the fossil record has no colour preserved at all. 99% of fossils are bones, shells, teeth, and so preserving soft tissues that have colour is very, very rare. But every so often, if you get the right sort of circumstances, um, coloured tissues like skin and feathers and insect cuticle do get preserved. There's two ways that things can make colour, isn't there? Because there's the kind of colour as in, I dye my clothes a certain colour, but then there's another kind of colour which is the structure of a surface. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the first type of colour you were talking about is pigmentary colour, and pigments are chemicals. These are the colours that we see in our clothes, in our hair, in our skin, and so on. And structural colours, they're produced via an entirely physical process, not involving chemicals at all. So what happens is light comes into a tissue and is scattered in a coherent way by tiny ordered nanostructures. And the light that is reflected, it's reflected using constructive interference so that all the light waves are in phase. And this really enhances your visual signal. So it bumps up your colour. It makes it more intense and brighter. So these structural colours, although we may not be as familiar with them as pigments, they actually give us the brightest colours in nature. But when they fossilise... Are you looking for those tiny nanostructures then that give that colour? Were they still in existence? Exactly, yeah. So to find fossilised examples of these structural colours, you know, the first clue is that you find a find fossil insect that is blue or green rather than the standard black or brown. <laughs> um, and then when you find one of these coloured fossil insects, what you then do is use very powerful microscopes, electron microscopes, to scan the tissue in detail to look for these nanostructures. And yes, you know, they are preserved, but they're not preserved exactly as they were in life. And that's the key to the whole story. Also, the things you're looking at were, by definition, preserved millions of years ago. Do you look at modern-day insects and say, well, we know that sort of pattern of of nanostructures makes that sort of colour, so we'll deduce that in our fossil it must have been that sort of colour? 
you could you could use that approach, but the problem is we don't have enough fossils for which we have modern analogues of the extant species. Over millions of years, species diverge. So with the fossils, what we found was when we looked at the preserved nanostructures in the tissues, they were giving us a false reading. They were telling us that the original colours weren't preserved. So in order to actually find the missing piece of the puzzle we decided to do fossilisation experiments. We made fossils in the lab, basically. It must have been a long experiment. It takes no. millions of years. <laughs> no, actually, um, uh, our experiments took 24 hours each. Basically, what you do is you bump up the temperature and pressure. You use conditions that you wouldn't get in nature just to speed up the whole process because, you know, a typical research project lasts two or three years. You, you don't want to spend the whole time gathering your data. So... How do you know then that what you have produced by altering the conditions is a faithful reflection, if you excuse the pun, on what would have occurred in that original insect millions of years ago? Well, we know this two ways. People have done these kinds of burial experiments. They're called maturation experiments um, many, many times before on fossil tissues and compared the results with what you actually see in fossils with, in terms of both the chemistry and preservation of physical structure. So we know these experiments are a very good analogue for what we see in the fossil record. And with our own results, we were actually able to very closely replicate in the experiments what we had in the fossils. It all matches up perfectly. We produced a very nice progressive colour change as we increased temperature and pressure, and we were able to explain why this colour change happens. So colours change during fossilisation because, number one, the thickness of the layers in the nanostructure changes during the fossilisation process, but number two, the chemistry of the tissue changes as well. This is why colours change. But we did have one very unexpected result, and that was, at the end of our experiments, we decided to just really ramp up the conditions. How far do we have to go until we manage to turn our structurally coloured insects black? What do we have to do to just obliterate colour completely? Because this is what we see in the bulk of the fossil record. And when we did this, eventually we managed to generate our black insects, which are basically what most of the fossil record looks like. But just, well, just out of curiosity, we said, let's just look at the structure in these black fossil insects as well. And when we did that, we still found traces of the colour-producing structure. So this means that we can now go to the bulk of the fossil record, looking at all of those black fossil insects, and actually, we, you know, there's a good chance that we'll find evidence of colour there. So we'll be able to reconstruct original colours and colour patterns for a whole host of different insects. And so this means that we have the potential to start reconstructing communication strategies um, in ecosystems, you know, and actually tracking how communication strategies and behaviours have changed over geological time. And behaviour is, of course, one of the most elusive aspects of fossil organisms. So we think we're on to a bit of a winner with this one. Maria McNamara from the University of Bristol. A uh, quick tweet from Dr Hannah Garrett, who says, I've enjoyed your show since I was an undergraduate. Thank you so much for keeping my scientific interests broad and up to date. You can tweet too. It's at Naked Scientist. Martha. To finish with a tricky question to reflect on, here's Hannah Critchlow with our question of the week. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega. 
Hello and welcome to Question of the Week. This week we probe the powers of reflection. My name is Jay Shaw and I'm from Greenhithe in Kent. My question for the Naked Scientist is whether you can make an infinitely powerful laser just using mirrors. Thank you. So, first up, how does a laser actually work? If you give an atom energy, it can give that energy back out as a photon of light in two different ways. Normally, it does this spontaneously in a random direction. But if it's hit by another photon of light of exactly the same energy, it will release its energy as a second photon, which is identical to the first photon and in the same direction. So, amplifying the light signal. That means that in a medium full of excited atoms, one photon can get amplified into millions of photons, all going in the same direction. Dr Martin Austwick from University College London explains how the use of mirrors further amplifies this signal in lasers. Now a way that you can make that amplification even more powerful is by having parallel mirrors. So the light passes through the medium and gets amplified, bounces off the mirror on the right-hand side and then passes all the way down to the left-hand side getting amplified and then repeats and bounces backwards and forwards and as it's passing through the medium gets more and more powerful. And so, given that, can we simply line up more and more parallel mirrors to make an all-powerful laser? Apparently not. You need one of the mirrors to be partially reflective. It needs to have a little bit of light leakage out. Otherwise the light will be permanently trapped inside that cavity and you never get it shining out of the laser itself. So that means some energy is lost on each cycle. So it's not perfectly reflective. Each bounce of that light loses a little bit of energy. In fact, both mirrors are not perfect. They will absorb some energy rather than reflecting all of it. And this limits the power of the laser beam output. And most laser beam powers are limited, since if you don't put energy into the laser fast enough to excite the atoms in the cavity medium, they can start absorbing light rather than amplifying it. Back to Martin. The way that lasers work is that they have to have a material which in it's some sort of excited state. When a laser amplifies itself, it takes energy out of the medium. So it takes excited molecules or atoms in it. They, those atoms and molecules lose energy and they go to a low energy state. So at some point, when you've got a very, very high degree of amplification, it's constantly de-exciting molecules. And eventually, you'll end up in a situation where there aren't any more molecules to de-excite. So there's a limit to how powerful a laser beam can be. But John Tisch, Professor of Laser Physics at Imperial College London, adds that there is a different way that you can use mirrors to increase laser power. While an individual laser will have its definite power limits, mirrors can actually be used to combine the beams from multiple lasers to boost the output. This combining of multiple laser beams is the approach taken by the National Ignition Facility, or NIF for short, which is in Livermore, California, where 192 pulsed laser beams are combined using loads of mirrors to deliver huge amounts of laser energy to a hydrogen fuel target uh, with the hope of achieving fusion. Just a few weeks ago, NIF fired a record 1.85 megajoules onto a target, corresponding to a staggering peak laser power of 500 trillion watts, which is about 1,000 times more than the total US power consumption. So, Jay, yes, very high-power laser beams are possible, and it can all be done with mirrors. But only by using mirrors to merge different individual laser beams. We next reflect on the beginnings of life on Earth. Hi, this is Beryl Wary calling from Richmond, Virginia. I was wondering, if Earth is such a great place to live, why to our knowledge has life only begun once on this planet? Why don't we see new life beginning here every day? 
And why do we believe that there is only one tree of life? What do you think? You can tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page, email Chris at The Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Well, that is it. Next week, we'll be finding out how robots cope with life on the open ocean with a robot race at sea. Send us any questions to chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientist. Thank you, Ben Valsler and Martha Henriquez, and also to Hannah Critchlow and Tom Simpkins for their help with production. See you next time. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com. Music.